0: Hey, Biota listeners, this episode contains descriptions of the reported uses of some highly toxic plants. I strongly warn against anyone attempting to use or experiment with these plants in any way. They are toxic and one mistake can be deadly. Halloween conjures images that mark the changing of seasons and the passage of time. Leaves shift from green to orange, yellow, and brown before falling from trees, whose bare branches cast strange shadows in the fading sunlight as night arrives a little earlier each day. The form of Halloween that many people think of now, with candy, trick-or-treating, and parties, is dramatically different from the traditions brought to North America by Scots-Irish immigrants in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The modern, highly commercialized version of Halloween was shaped by social changes in the US in the 1950s, which brought us to where we are today, with Halloween second only to Christmas, another holiday with pagan origins in terms of how extensively people plan, decorate, and celebrate. The name Halloween comes from All Hallows' Eve and refers to the night before All Saints' Day, a celebration of those hallowed saints who didn't have a day dedicated to them specifically in remembrance of the families departed. Originally, All Saints Day was celebrated at a different time of year, but in the 8th century, it was moved to November 1st in what was ultimately a failed attempt to co-opt the pagan events celebrated on October 31st by Druids and the keepers of the ancient Gaelic traditions. But the Druids and the Pagans, they didn't celebrate Halloween. They celebrated a much older holiday shrouded in the mists of time. Join me in exploring the origins of Halloween in this autumn episode of Biota where I'll make the case that although Halloween typically makes us think about witches, werewolves, vampires, ghouls, and goblins, it's also a holiday full of botanical iconography, and at its orange and black heart, Halloween really is a celebration of the magical alchemy and power that plants alone possess. So pull up a seat, get a little closer to the fire, and bundle up against the October wind as we celebrate Halloween on Biota. The celebration and traditions we now commonly associate with and participate in on October 31st, they trace their origins to the ancient Gaelic harvest celebration, Samhain. It looks like it should be pronounced Samhain, but it's Samhain or Samhain, depending on who you ask. No matter how you pronounce it, Samhain was a harvest celebration, and harvest celebrations are part of cultures worldwide. But there is something fundamentally different about how it was celebrated by the ancient peoples of Scotland and Ireland. In their calendar and culture, Samhain marked the end of the old year and the beginning of the next. It was their New Year's Eve. But the reason they celebrated it at this time of year was not just a date that you reset the calendar to each year, it was a celebration that had a fundamentally botanical foundation. And when you start to look deeper, you find that many of the common icons and symbols of Halloween are tied to the bonds between plants and humans. So where we'll start is with the most important part of Samhain, the bonfire. The bonfire symbolized the importance of the sun to these ancient peoples. It was ignited before sunset and burned throughout the night as people ate, drank, danced, sang, and celebrated around it. Samhain was in part a celebration of the life-giving sun, which allowed plants to grow, provided the abundance of the harvest, and supported the hopes that enough food had been put away to get through the winter. The burning logs in the bonfire themselves are literally releasing the energy of the sun that was trapped in them and protecting the partiers from the cold, dark night. So there's my first point about Halloween being a botanical holiday at heart. Its origins, like other harvest celebrations in cultures around the world, are ancient human rites recognizing the sun, plants, and photosynthesis as essential to keeping humans alive. Although a lot of poor scholarship in the 1700s, 1800s, and beyond would misidentify Samhain as a pagan celebration of death and the devil, it was nothing of the sort. In the Gaelic calendar, Samhain marked the end of one year and the beginning of the next. As with many ancient people, The Gaelic people marked this important event based on seasonal changes in the vegetation and the length of daylight and night. The growing season was the focus of their year and Samhain marked the true end of it, roughly halfway between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. At this time, the long warm days of summer were giving way to the approaching cold and darkness of winter. The harvest had been completed and all the food stores for winter had been put away. All plants except the evergreens had shed their leaves the life-sustaining power of photosynthesis was over until spring. The sun was rising later and setting a little earlier each day, which indicated to them that the old year was dying in darkness. Ecologically, this makes sense as a time for one last celebration to give thanks for the food and resources plants provided in the previous year. It was one last time of plenty before settling in for the harsh long winter, characteristic of high northern latitudes. It would be disingenuous of me to say that death wasn't also part of the events around Solon. It was. But to me, I think it would be better to say that Samhain was really when the existence of death as a part of life and our dependence on a living green earth for survival was acknowledged. Many of the ancient Scottish and Irish tales about this time of year originated with Gaelic druids. They involved the changes in seasons and death and battles between humans and dark malevolent forces. The ancient Celts recognized this as a spiritually powerful time. I can't speak to whether or not ancient druids offered human or any other kinds of blood sacrifices as part of their Samhain rites, but it is certain that a lot of livestock would be slaughtered around this time of year because it was finally cold enough for meat to be stored and cured for winter. It was also time to reduce the number of animals that would need to be fed from the hay and other fodder put back to get them through the winter as well. So there was a lot of blood and death at this time of year for these people. It makes sense then that there would have also been sacrifices to their gods at this time of year as part of their preparations for what was about to come, maybe hedge their bets a little bit. So Solomon would mark the onset of this truly dark part of the year, the lean part of the year when famine could visit the unprepared and those who had not sufficiently stored the energy of the sun in their pantries, cellars, and barns. And during the dark beginning of winter, people knew the specter of death was never far away. In the Gaelic worldview, Samhain was what is called a time, one of two times each year when the veil is thin between this world and the other side. They believed souls and spirits of the departed could move between the two worlds on this night. Families would often leave out favorite foods for the souls of the departed. In some instances, the poor would practice something called souling, in which they would go from house to house saying prayers for the resident's departed loved ones in exchange for food. Another practice, mumming and guising, involved visitors who wore masks and costumes to perform skits and songs. As you surely guessed, these ancient traditions morphed into the modern one, trick-or-treating. Not all of these ancient visitors were as harmless as small children begging for candy, however. Demons, fairies, witches, ghoulies, and ghosties were also believed to celebrate Halloween. The offerings were also put out to appease mischievous or malevolent fairies and demons who were also thought to move easily between the two worlds at this time. The power of this Gaelic imagery is recorded in Robert Byrne's famous poem, tam o' shanter in which Tam spies on a Halloween party where the devil plays bagpipes himself and watches fairies, witches, and demons dance. Tam manages to escape with his life, but his horse, Meg, she loses her tail as they barely get away. Now, as fascinating as all that is, I've strayed a bit from our botanical topic, and we'll be coming back to witches later, so let's get back on track. My second piece of botanical evidence about the importance of plants in Halloween is one of its most enduring symbols, the pumpkin. These beautiful orange fruits, yes, they are fruits, they ripen at this time of year, only to have some of us plunge knives into them to carve the smiling face or malevolent grin of a jack-o'-lantern. The jack-o'-lantern is another Gaelic contribution to Halloween. It originates with the story of Jack, a disreputable fellow who tricked the devil. Because of this, the devil denies his soul entry to hell when Jack dies. Because heaven won't have him either, Jack's soul is doomed to wander the earth using a hollowed-out turnip with a candle inside as a lantern as he looks for a place to rest. Sometimes, people would also carve faces in turnips and other root vegetables and place them in windows as a reminder of poor Jack. So, you're probably wondering at this point how he got from turnips to pumpkins. Once again, the answer takes us back to the link between harvest and Halloween and the traditions Irish immigrants brought with them when they carried Samhain across the Atlantic. Carving faces in the larger roots like turnips for Jack's Lantern or the manglewurzel that some Scottish villages carved for a late October festival called Punky Night, well, that's an old Gaelic tradition. So it's likely that immigrants adapted this form of folk art when they came to North America and encountered the pumpkin, a unique fruit that did not grow in Europe. The large, round, easily hollowed out pumpkin was perfect for carving faces in. Long before the Irish brought Saw to North America, people in this continent were carving frightening faces in hollowed out pumpkins and placing candles in them. Sometimes mischievous youths would replace the head of a scarecrow standing silent vigil over an empty field with one of these carved fruits with a candle inside to give passersby an unexpected thrill while walking on a dark autumn night. We know the tradition of carving pumpkins at harvest predates the arrival of Halloween in the U.S. because of the book The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. As Lisa Morton points out in her book Trick or Treat, The tale of the headless horseman wielding his fiery jack-o'-lantern head as he pursues Ichabod Crane, it predates the first mention of carving pumpkins specifically for Halloween decorations by almost a century. Pumpkins were already associated with the American harvest celebration Thanksgiving, so a link between harvest, scarecrows, and pumpkins was well established in the United States. It seems inevitable that pumpkins would eventually replace turnips as the glowing face of a jack-o'-lantern, becoming perhaps the most iconic symbol of Halloween. My last example of the importance of plants in Halloween is not so much the plants themselves, but rather those practiced in the arts of how to use them. Witches are the queens of Halloween. They are renowned for their knowledge of plants, their lore, and their uses. I mean, come on, even Hogwarts required its students to take botany as a gen ed requirement. So when we think about witches from an ethnobotanical perspective, they are more accurately thought of as wise women who are keepers of powerful and important knowledge about the uses of plants. The word hag, before its more pejorative current interpretation, is derived from the same word as hedge, and it originally referred to a woman wise in the use of wild plants that grow in the hedgerow. Beyond sugars produced during photosynthesis, plants synthesize an incredible collection of chemical compounds, including one particularly important group called alkaloids. Alkaloids are bitter chemicals that give coffee its kick, peppers their fiery bite, and chocolate, well, they give chocolate its everything. In general, however, most alkaloids are powerful neurotoxins that affect the brain and senses. Because of that, they are known to have a wide range of pharmacological applications. The darker side of this, however, is that because they are neurotoxins, they can be poisonous if prepared or administered incorrectly. And the plant family most well-known for production of these toxic chemicals, the solanaceae, it warns of its lethal heritage in its common name, the nightshades. Knowledge of the nightshades and their uses formed the foundation of ancient medicine for centuries and still does today in many ways. Our ancestors learned how the chemicals produced by these plants could be used to enhance alertness, halt an infection, or induce sleep. Keepers of this knowledge were indispensable to survival. Unfortunately, wise women practiced in the botanical arts were sometimes looked upon with suspicion, pushed to the fringes of society, and even accused of worshiping the devil. Although many people were wary of these wise women, or witches, their special connection to the mystical world was in high demand when someone was ill or during Halloween, when the psychic energy of the limnial season was at its peak. Some witches used apples floating in a tub of water, or hazelnuts thrown into a fire to tell the future. Over time, some of these acts of divination morphed into party games like bobbing for apples. Others thankfully have faded from memory. For example walking into a cabbage field backwards and blindfolded to examine cabbage stalks to tell your fortune while divining the future may be a very questionable art there's no doubt that witches botanical knowledge gave them the power of life and death and even the ability to alter perceptions of reality plants such as henbane mandrake and devil's snare have been part of the witches and physicians pharmacopoeia for centuries because they produce chemical compounds called tropane alkaloids that alter the normal action of neurotransmitters. Practitioners use tinctures, teas, topical salves, and even smoke from these plants to produce pain relief or sleep when they administered them in small doses. Larger quantities, however, could induce various forms of visual and auditory hallucinations, delirium, or even death. Witches' connections with these specific plants go back to the symbolism associated with the ancient archetypical witch Hecate. Hecate is an ancient Greek goddess who presided over hearth and home, plants and magic, the night and the dead. As with all of the ancient gods, there are specific symbols and plants tied to her. In Hecate's case, one of these was the broom. She was also thought to own certain plants, including henbane, belladonna, wolf's bane, mandrake, willow, and even mint. Some of these special plants were surrounded in further mystery probably because they are toxic and even lethal when their leaves or roots are handled incorrectly. For example, wreaths of henbane were believed to be worn by the dead souls who wandered the banks of the river Styx. Deadly nightshade was rumored to be the devil's favorite plant, but keeping a sprig of it in your house was thought to also protect against evil spirits. Mandrake is the most interesting one. Mandrake was thought to grow in the places where hanged criminals had lost control of their bladders when they died. The roots were believed to emit shrieks when pulled from the ground that could render a person mad or, if not handled properly, cause them to be possessed by the evil spirits inside the plant. So that scene in Harry Potter? It's based on an ancient belief that goes back into the mists of time. But one of the more unusual uses of these plants was the production of something called flying ointment. Flying ointment was rumored to be one of the most powerful concoctions a witch could make. Flying ointment allowed her to transport herself from one place to another on her broom or perhaps on an enchanted pig or goat to celebrate Halloween rituals with Lucifer. Like many things involving the ethnobotanical mysteries of witchcraft, the exact composition, history, and even use of flying ointment is controversial. I'm not a historian, practitioner of Wicca, or a specialist in the occult, but I think we can sort through this a little and read the tea leaves, so to speak, to tease out the botany. Science historian and professor of pharmacology, M.R. Lee, describes a reported recipe from 1584, which listed the components of flying ointment as the fat from young children, henbane, aconite, and bat's blood. The book goes on to say that after applying the flying ointment, the witches would become delirious, then enjoy feasting, dancing, and acts of venery. The highly toxic alkaloids in flying ointment can't literally cause flight, but it's thought that the mixture of these alkaloids into a salve, an application to the skin, could cause hallucinations and the sensation of flight and travel. The question is then, was flying ointment used as part of a specific druid or Wiccan ritual? Or was it something used recreationally as part of the Samhain celebrations? We don't know and it doesn't matter, but it's clear that witches and their knowledge of plants made a huge contribution to Halloween as we know it today. Not everyone was able to use plants as successfully as witches, however. So before I bring this episode to an end, I wanna take one little botanical side trip and talk about an application of plants that didn't really work as well as people thought it would. Although masks are a common part of the trick-or-treater's costume that people are happy to see at their door, in the time of the bubonic plague, there was one mask you never wanted to see, and that's the mask worn by the plague doctor. When someone showed up at your door wearing that one, death wasn't far behind. The plague doctor's costume was a type of medieval PPE invented by Charles Laorme in 1619. It consisted of a long black coat infused with scented waxes and a frightening bird-like mask topped with a wide-brim hat. The mask was made of sheepskin or goatskin and had a beak that was roughly six inches long. The ears of the mask were plugged with garlic and rue while the beak was packed with different aromatic herbs or flowers such as rosemary. Hyacinth, roses, marigolds, pine, that kind of thing. There were two small holes on either side of the beak that when the plague doctor inhaled, it would bring in the strong scent of the herbs to protect the wearer of the mask from the poisonous vapors causing the plague. You see, back then, doctors were still operating under the miasma model that I talked about in a previous episode. They thought that the scents of the herbs associated with good health would protect the doctor from the bad air or miasma that they thought caused the plague. While it did provide some relief from the smells of sickness and death, it did absolutely nothing to protect the doctors from the plague. You see, the disease they were fighting, bubonic plague, is caused by a bacterium transmitted through flea bites. If it had been an airborne disease, something like, say, SARS-CoV-2, well, then the mask would have helped. I mean, masks, when used correctly, are effective for controlling transmission and infection with SARS-CoV-2. We know that for a fact. But what this highlights, as far as the plague doctor is concerned, is that your means of protection needs to match the mode of transmission of the disease. Although they did little to cure the disease, plague doctors did a lot to document deaths and and try to understand what was going on with the plague. And their costumes are still worn in some festivals and in theaters in Europe to remember this dark time in their history. And I think it's safe to say that a plague doctor costume will eventually become incorporated into the history and shape-shifting mythology of Halloween to remind us of Halloween 2020. Halloween has changed considerably since its origins as the Samhain celebration. That ancient festival dedicated to harvest and the oncoming winter is now celebrated by trick-or-treaters harvesting candy. Governments, clerics, kings and queens have tried to stop it, but to no avail. Halloween is as strong now as it ever was. It has expanded and transformed to become something that in some ways is very different, but in others has become more similar to its ancient Samhain roots. But as you think about the monsters and ghouls, don't forget the role that plants and their special magic play in making Halloween what it is. So before you lay down to sleep, make sure the garlic is hung by the window, keep a wooden stake under your pillow, and a sprig of wolfbane on your bedside table. And when you see a smiling jack-o-lantern, don't forget old Jack, who's still looking for a place to rest. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Biota. A list of the books and resources I use can be found on my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. I want to be sure to mention Lisa Morton's book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. It's a fun read. Also, the research articles on the Solanaceae by Dr. M.R. Lee, they're great for ethnobotanical information on alkaloids and the plants that produce them. Several people helped pull this episode together, and I want to thank them here. First and foremost, thanks to Terry Gibson for writing, editing, and episode development. Research assistance on plague doctors and Halloween was provided by Maggie Gibson and Rob Gibson. And also, a big thank you and happy Samhain to you, the Biota listeners. I'm your host, Frightening Phil Gibson, and this has been Biota. Thanks for listening, have a great Halloween, and take it easy on the flying ointment. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed here are those of the authors alone.